What's up, my metal maniacs? This is the Judas Priest cast. And we've got another episode coming. You're getting awesome at those, Hattie. Thank you. Oh, didn't show you. My little uh, <laughs> biker Rob Halford guy that Fergal actually bought for me and gave to me when I saw him at Hell's Heroes last year. That's cool. Oh. Cool as hell, yeah. Sometimes I have it like over here next to the computer while I'm recording. Like, yeah, Rob is watching over our recording session. Yeah, emotional support, Rob. <laughs> emotional support, Rob. Who doesn't need one? Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, you know the drill by now. We're here to help boost some content creators in the metal scene who are actively advocating for issues facing the queer community today. Weston is a great friend of ours on Twitter. They are a writer for the Noob Heavy blog, the most prominent metal blog I know of that was founded by a queer person and champions leftist values and really tries to stick to that with their content and really promote the ethical line of thinking that they agree with. Weston writes excellent reviews about metal albums, but they're also quite knowledgeable and outspoken about issues in the queer community. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to everyone's favorite queer breakfast anarchist. How are you doing, Weston? Uh, I'm good. I've been anticipating this uh, this little chat we've been we're having now for a while. I'm excited to be here. Oh, excellent. Well, hey. Uh, Yay. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about uh, the work you do with Noob Heavy, a little bit about the blog and why you choose to write there? Sure. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, kind of just a random person on Twitter. You know, I would talk about things I was interested in, but I wasn't really using it for anything. And I happened to come across uh, the Twitter account for this blog that was at the time fairly new called Noob Heavy Blog. And they were talking. Uh, I didn't know it yet, but it was Melinda who started the blog. She was uh, talking on Twitter about how, at the time, Hooded Menace's newest album featured their newest new-ish vocalist who had uh, been in and currently was in a sort of Nazi biker metal band. And nobody else oh, was geez. talking about this. Yeah, everyone was overlooking the, the fact that Hooded Menace suddenly had this really sketchy guy involved. And it's kind of been overlooked since then. Like, nobody really paid attention. But I was like, hey, I appreciate that you are talking about this because this is something I've always done, but I didn't really have a community to talk about it with. So I was like, really cool that you are using your platform to talk about this. So we sort of connected there. And then um, sometime by the end of the year, she posted about wanting to start a Discord community for uh, like-minded people. So I joined that. Uh, Me and Melinda got talking and I offered to start writing regularly. And I've been doing that ever since. So I've been doing this for about a year and a half now. The reason I really like writing for Noob Heavy is we are very committed to a sense of ethical journalism. It's not just we are covering music by cool people. That's a great and important part of it. But it's also that we are actively using the the fact that we have a lot of eyes on us to speak out about issues that matter to make sure that we're not running coverage for bigoted views or maybe they're like abusers or something like that you know they're they're using whatever social capital they have to do or say terrible things and we're not just not going to do that we're actively going to speak about not supporting that sort of thing and i think that by a big sector of people you are very much appreciated in those efforts because I think that there has been more of a push for people to gain knowledge in recent years of where their money's going, 
who they're supporting. And with all the cultural backlash against Marilyn Manson and high profile abusers, a lot of the smaller level sketchy people are getting overlooked. And yeah, if someone exactly, yeah. And that might be something that you've been calling attention to. And if let's say your average Joe would never knowingly want to support someone who's a Nazi, but the fact is, you know, a lot of people who have those fascist beliefs are pretty private about it. Yeah. Or, try or, to be. or they use uh, dog whistles. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, a dog whistle is like a symbol or it's a specific kind of language used that says, hey, I have these very particular views, but I don't want a random person, say, on the Internet or a random person at my concert to know that I hold these Nazi beliefs or these racist beliefs or these very transphobic beliefs. So I'll use a dog whistle to symbol to other people who know what the dog whistle means that I'm on their side, but I don't alienate the potential masses. So educating people on what dog whistles are is one of the most important tools for us to take uh, use of because it's probably the most common form of racist or you know other kind of bigoted uh, presentation because Nazis are a problem, but the number of like bands that are named like the Third Reich that's there's not many bands with like super obvious like connotation. So it's a lot of like very coded language. It's a lot of like oh look we have a sun wheel. We have other symbols for Nazis that are not swastikas because there's so many of those that most people don't even know exist. Like a, a classic example is the notched shield. It's a medieval shield with a hole cut in the top right side, which is one of the symbols of the SS. Most people don't know that. So if you ever see a black metal band, for example, with that shield as their logo or implemented in art, they're a Nazi band. But you wouldn't know. So that's what makes it great as a dog whistle, because you can get random people who don't know this and be like, oh, this is just a cool band I like. Yeah, and they will just purchase their stuff and support them financially without like knowing anything that exactly. where this money is going. Yeah, for sure. And another thing is amazing about because you know we always have this debate about art versus artists, like how we should be separating the arts from the artists and all that. And this is like no like very binary debate. There are many layers to it. And, you know, this kind of clarity kind of adds to it, like helps people to decide, like, what do you really want to do with it, with this person, with their band, with this brand or even a platform even. So what you are doing is really amazing. And and in, most importantly, uh, in this world we live right now, Information is the biggest uh, weapon or the biggest currency or whatever we want to put it. It's a huge asset. And the way you are distributing it to people kind of empowers people a lot. Like it's beyond our imagination in cases, like how amazingly powerful information can be. I think you said that wonderfully, Heavy. Information is everywhere. There's so much information now. So it's really hard to know you know if there's a hundred bands so we like to act as not the the final voice not as we are delivering truth on high down to the the stupid people who don't know better we view it more as like we are going to be the ones doing the really hard work of sifting through all this information all these bands we get promotional content we get 
information, etc., on thousands of bands each year. So it's it's a lot. Most people can't even comprehend engaging with that, let alone really digging into whether it's safe, whether it's made by people who are bigots or not, whether it's supporting something that they don't want to support. So if we can act as a single tool to help people educate themselves and make better decisions, I think that's a massive step up for everyone from what it would be without it. Yeah, Yo, you guys are like kidney. You're filtering the blood out. <laughs> I like that metaphor. That's a good one. There you go. New heavy, the kidney of the metal scene. And hey, it's good that you sort of see it in a realistic way. Like you're not the final voice. You're just a source of information where people can go and you're trying to present all the information you have to the best of your ability. Yeah, because I think it's very easy within this sort of framework whether it's music education, whether it's talking about politics directly, like any sort of formal politics like bills or politicians, it's very easy for some people to get stuck in this mindset of like, well, I'm just smarter. I'm just better than all these other people. And they should listen to me because I'm important. And I don't think that way, but I, it's very easy to get sucked into that. So I can totally see how people move in that direction mentally, especially because there is a lot of pushback. And not just from people who actively support these kinds of harmful viewpoints, but people who don't want to feel like they're being told what to do or who feel like them liking something and being informed about maybe a bad part of that makes them bad. Like uh, Pantera is a great example because, George, you were there roughly six months ago when we had this big Twitter issue talking about Pantera. And most of the people who were arguing were not exclusively the like super racist Pantera fans. They were mostly people who came off like, well, I like Pantera. Are you calling me a racist? Because I'm totally not all this sort of thing. Like they didn't want to be associated with this. So they take it right. very personally. So it's really that's the biggest barrier. And I can see how that uh -huh. makes certain people feel superior and be like, well, I'm not like these idiots defending Pantera. So therefore, I'm just, you know, I'm the new important person and then it, you know it goes down this path that becomes brought with arrogance and sort of dismissiveness towards people so remaining humble but also like aware that certain parts of human psychology are by default going to get in your way it, it's a hard thing to get used to but once you do it's very important yeah i agree like, with you, you on know that. that's what i was like talking about like sometimes it gets really hard for us to separate the art from the artist uh, there are these big name uh, people who were in like Hollywood people, like the, the the movies they made, which made a lot of people feel good about themselves. Like, yes, I'm talking about Woody Allen. Like he is an atrocious person, but the movies he made, a lot of people made good connections to it. They, that got them through like possibly bad times, like gave them good times and all that. And when these things are coming up, sometimes they're at, acting like so you now want me to like uh, get back to the place that uh, I like got recovered from just because I enjoyed that movie or that thing so this is really a very complex thing to work uh, like that delve into but good information and community of both together like help people to make decisions about themselves about their past their future what they 
where they want to uh, invest or things they want to enjoy, people they want to support. So same communities like help make it easier. Yeah. I think you emphasizing community is very important, Hattie, because it's not just about educating people. It's about creating a sense of friendship and people wanting to get along and work on improving things, not just in the broader world, but literally in the music scene itself, improving the sort of culture that we have been dealing with for so many decades. Um, Like, we're all pretty young, so we haven't been here, you know, since the 70s, dealing with, you know, the original Judas Priest fans, for example, grappling with Rob's sexuality. This has been going on for so long, but like both of you have been saying, we are trying to improve that, and I think the most important thing, even more important than the education, is building a sense of community. Because if George individually is like, well, I'm not going to support this band, that's irrelevant. That doesn't matter because George is one person. But if mm-hmm. 30 people, if 100 people start to be like, hey, we've noticed a problem here, you know, maybe it's not a huge difference, but it's enough of one that people start talking about it. So creating this community, this interconnected social scene, and we don't all have to know everyone, but like it's important to, you know, forge these connections with as many people as possible. Right. And you also, when you do that, you're building a community that has a set of values where we really don't accept any sort of hateful or bigoted ideologies. And you can cultivate a group of like-minded people who you could be reasonably sure are pretty decent. And that's also to the point of how it's not always from a negative perspective. You're not always, uh, let's say, tearing down a hateful band. Because sometimes you also want to be positive and lift up bands that have the message of inclusivity as well. Bands like Esquela Grind, who are out there and promoting that everyone is equal and everyone is welcome at their concerts. Yeah, totally. Like you, I think you chose a good way to frame it. Destroying, tearing down these harmful bands is an important part, but it's not as you can't just destroy it. And you have to have something to be like, focus this sort of positive direction on. Because if you just end up talking exclusively about all the harm, you kind of one, you put people in a negative mental space by default because they're only looking for things that are wrong. And two, you also run into this problem of like, well, this is helpful, but you're not really helping too much because, uh, like I said before, educating a few people about something is not as helpful as giving something really small a much bigger audience. Like a squill grain is a perfect example because that's a not that's a band that is not that big, 
but the attention they've got on the internet from various people who were excited about their music and their message made a big difference for them and for the community. So I think using the blog to uh, celebrate people and bands who might not otherwise get as much attention, if any attention, is just as important, if not more important. We cover lots of queer artists. We get promotions from queer artists who have heard about the blog. Melinda's not currently writing right now, but she covers a lot of hip-hop. Most of us have some sort of interest in and punk music, which ideally is about improving the music scene, is about uh, coming together, is about inclusivity. It hasn't always been that way, but the ideal form of it should be like that. So we are trying to approach this from as many angles as possible to be like, there are whole communities of people out there who do not get the chance to get on the cover of Decibel magazine, who do not get an interview with Loudwire, who do not feature on a Revolver YouTube video. So we are trying to get eyes on amazing art made by really cool people who, because of their identity, are probably being ignored way more than they would be if they were a generic band doing something else. Yeah, and that promotes the real equality we so like to talk about, promoting people that deserve to be promoted, have amazing talent, but just can because they choose to live a life that is not as lauded as the other ways left here, which is like sad. And one yeah. band one band I found through the Noob Heavy blog and you were the one who wrote the review. I'm wearing their t-shirt right now. Sonia, they are an excellent, excellent band. They released their debut album last year, Loud Arriver. Their vocalist, Melissa Moore, is openly transgender. And it's one of the best metal albums of the year made by anyone, regardless of their demographic. But it might not have gotten the attention it deserved if it wasn't for people loudly championing that album yeah and i think sonia with melissa moore in particular is a very hilarious example of the ways very bigoted views actively backfire a lot of the time so for anyone who doesn't know melissa moore was originally in a black metal band called absu uh when she came out a few years ago as trans the main guy behind absu was like well i don't want a trans person in my band so he tried to kick her out. It got into this whole thing. And so instead, it, what he did was he just said, well, we're just banding. And then he reformed the band with a different, slightly different name and was like, well, we're what just a cop out. I know it's such a coward. Um... Move. It's He can't even commit to it. It's so hilarious. But anyway, because of this, everyone was like, well, Melissa Moore wrote most of the music and was the guitarist. So she was the only reason your band was good. And if you've heard any of the new music from that old band, they're trash. because She's not writing anything. So now that she's out of that band and it sucks that she had to deal with it. I'm not saying that it's good that she was dealing with this transphobia, but it's funny that in a way that incident caused her to be like, you know what? I'm going to branch out and do other things. And now we have one of the best modern heavy metal bands I've ever heard in a long time with Sonia. And she's also got a death metal project called Crossfitter. And like in general, it just seems like she's doing way better than she ever was before. And it's because of this person from her old band deciding, you know, I don't want to work with her because I'm a bigot. And it backfired on him. And it doesn't always work that way, but it's hilarious when it does. Yeah, poetic justice. 
or should we say like heavy metal justice here? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. We could say that. Yeah, Melissa Moore is like a phoenix from the ashes of that band. And it sucks that for anyone who liked Absu and now you have to look back on it and you have to judge it like, is it worth listening to this music that I used to enjoy now that I know that I might not agree with this person's worldviews at all? They might stand for transphobia that I don't believe in. Maybe I don't want to listen to that anymore. But, you know, it's the sort of experience that everyone has to grapple with at some point in their lives because, let's be honest, there is a lot of art out there that has been made by not so good people. And it's not just music. You can count movies, books. I mean, heck, H.P. Lovecraft was a notorious racist, but he's one of the most famous authors ever. I think the H.P. Lovecraft thing is funny too because you have this entire genre of horror called cosmic horror that was in many ways inspired by him directly so you have this lineage of like well most of the modern cosmic horror is like not racist at all it has nothing to do with his viewpoints but it comes from this place so how do you treat this artwork so there's a lot of questions like that a lot of people have if they start asking those questions yeah, and it's not to anything like, as I said, binary. There will not be any zero and one answers. There will be layers. There will be lines crossing gray areas and everything. And that's why I think a community is more important than anything else because sometimes, like, you need support, you need a discussion to say the least, to like, you know, draw things out of it. Like, how much can we take? How much can we not take? Like, as I was uh, talking about the Woody Allen movies, like, yes, that horrible man made those movies, but, uh, you know, he was not the only person. Um, other people who were, uh, like, involved with it, how they get factored in, in that and all of the other things. The, this kind of conversations, uh, uh, we get, like, uh, some sort of information or tool of thought and everything from those. So I think that's why it's important to create community and have conversations about problems. That's how we find solutions. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better, Hattie. Thank you.
So Weston, would you like to tell us a little bit about your identity as a queer person and how you've felt participating in the metal community and any sort of issues that you've seen? Uh, I want to hear your take. I want you to sound off on that. Sure. So for listeners, I personally identify myself as a non-binary, agender lesbian. Uh, to me, that means I don't exist as a man or a woman. I'm something else. The agender term, I'm not a fan of gender. I don't like when trans women, for example, say like, oh, I wore a dress for the first time and I really felt like a woman and that's empowering to them. I love that for them. And that's really cool. But that's not the kind of thing that really speaks to me in any way. I've never felt this sort of this abstract connection to a particular expression of in the sense that gender is usually identified as. So I sort of exist outside of that. And I'm fully supportive of everyone who exists within it because it works for them and I'm happy for them. It just isn't for me. So I apply the term lesbian to myself as a sort of non-man attracted to non-men. Doesn't have to be woman on woman exclusively. That's a very old way of framing it, built in an old sense of language. And I prefer this term, and I think it applies to me, even though by many traditional standards it wouldn't. But language evolves, the world's evolving. So um, I didn't know, I, I don't consider myself someone who was in the closet as a child many trans people will be like oh well you know i knew i was a girl as young as five or i knew i was a boy when i turned 10 and i didn't feel like the other girls my age who weren't they felt more like a boy that's never been me i was always completely identified as a boy until my late teens early 20s i didn't have this sort of sense that i was always something else that i didn't know how to describe since a child i never felt that way once i got older it felt more like a choice to me. And many queer people will say, well, I was just born this way. There's nothing wrong with that. For me, it, I don't identify with that sort of thinking about it. I don't feel like I was born this way. And I don't think that you should have to be born a specific way for it to matter. So for me, it feels like a choice. And I don't think that's less important because it's a choice. So that's just my little personal way of thinking about it. As for how I would apply this to the metal scene, you know, I grew up in the early 2000s. There's the tail end of new metal, which is very hyper masculine, very much about performing this sort of like over the top, like I get bitches, I drink and party all the time. I don't care about the consequences of my actions, sort of. The, this is like almost the, the extreme form of the rock star attitude, right? But like right. that's kind of and, dying down. And in this time period, you could still hear some homophobic slurs in absolutely. songs by bands like Corn and Limp Bizkit. Yeah, absolutely. So, but the, but this was dying down by the time I was growing up. It was definitely there, and I felt it, but it wasn't the thing like it was like in 1999, 2001. It was a little bit later than that. I had my best friend in high school, who I'm no longer friends with for a variety of reasons, but he was really into like dad rock. <laughs> I like to say. You know, like he he wasn't in Nirvana. He was into like all the a, a few more modern bands, but he really liked ACDC. He really liked Aerosmith, etc. So like, I didn't really have in my youth any form of fellow metalheads, fellow fans of this sort of genre. I wasn't really going to shows because my parents were very much like, well, 
why do you need to go to a show that lasts till midnight in the city kind of <laughs> overprotective attitude. Um, but one thing that me and that friend were really into together was Metallica are kind of that universal band. They're so big. They're the biggest band ever. So like they, they connect with metalheads, they connect with fans of dad rock, they connect with fans of people who aren't really even into rock, but, but the black album's so big that everyone's heard it. You know, the, all these For people sure. from various walks of life have heard of Metallica and, uh, and me and him connected over that. So I grew up no real personal in-person connections, but I was on the internet constantly. I'd seen metal sucks comment sections. I'd seen early. Yeah, that that's the real problem where it starts for me. The internet at the time, it's gotten a little better, but it's still got a problem was awful to be on. People were just like, Hey, I can post anything on the internet and nobody will know it was me. I'm going to post the most hateful, awful shit you've ever seen and get away with it. And you, then you have the invention of trolling people who just post intentionally awful things just to make other people mad. So you would see these comment sections, these blogs just full of awful people saying awful stuff. And so much of it was, you know, why are there gay people in metal? Black people got into metal because of new metal. They should stay out who cares about women all this other like the, the idea being basically because of new metal sort of getting metal more mainstream than it had ever been and the rise of the internet meaning more people could see it than before you have these people who feel threatened by the fact that people they consider outsiders are now entering their space so to speak and it's like well if you really think that just get off the internet and pretend those people don't exist. Why do you need to go on and say all this harmful shit? It, the real reason is because they feel threatened and it makes them feel powerful to go shit on people for existing in their space. So I think right. it's really cool to upset those people by just existing. <laughs> it is fun, right? If they were face to face, they would never say this stuff for any reason. They would just not do it. They don't want to get in a fight. Maybe they don't feel powerful enough to say it, but like they, they don't say it in real life in the same volume that they do online. It's a lot easier to do it online. Yeah. As much like it is true that a lot of people who are like physically not the most buff and like the most fit or, you know, the most accepted socially or like in like, their uh, circles, they get like extremely opinionated and heartful to other people just because they can. And this is where they use their pent up energy. And sometimes they do it for like the positive reasons, like creating communities to support others and all that, despite being ignored in like real life. That is also a thing. And, and that possibly was happening since like the mid to late 2000s on social media as well. But there was this big chunk of people, quote unquote, losers in schools and everywhere who like, would like be really big on social media, making memes, making like harmful or hurtful content to belittle other people in just the most toxic way they possibly could. And in cases, it usually like capitalizing this online fame to get accepted by the people who actually ignored them in real life all of these were in equation back in like in mid to late 2000s as i now think of it i think that's a good way of putting it yeah wow that's a lot there that 
you really got to the heart of the whole issue. Metal is a genre for outsiders, and sometimes people who are in that periphery of society will feel insecurities that they want to take out on other people. And that's where a lot of that metal website comment section comes from. People who are using the power of anonymity to be bullies with whatever small level of power they have. More like abusing the power of anonymity. Well, that too. That's definitely true. That was a lot of the internet culture we grew up with. But now, of course, you said that things are starting to improve a little. Yeah, definitely. Like talking about Sonia, for example, that's a woman who is outwardly trans, who's fronting a very popular, for the size of the band, a very popular band. And I know so many trans people now who are making music. You're going to have one of them on as a guest soon. Uh, you know just almost as many people in our twitter circle as i do like they're trans they're making music there's gay people they're making music there's women who are out there making music there's non-white people out there who are making music and we're hearing all of this a large part of that is thanks to the internet it has this downside but the internet is amazing we have access to so many things that we would never have had i have read so many books on the history of heavy metal where someone who was in a Swedish death metal band says, you know, I had to write to this American guy, send him a letter, and wait three months for him to reply back, and maybe he'd send me a tape that has a Metallica song on it. And nowadays, I can YouTube or Spotify a band from India, a band from South Africa. I can hear music from anywhere in the world on demand, and that means that the place you're born is no longer as much of a barrier to people being aware of you as it used to be. And that's amazing. I think that's really cool. And it's also been super important subtly for improving the diversity of people in the scene. Because it's you used to have to rely almost exclusively on the bands you could see locally, or if you're able to you know, drive cross-country. 
or who are the magazine or music writing about. But now we don't need them. Now we can decide, I want to hear Indonesian brutal death metal. And you can. And you don't need to wait for someone to tell you about it. You can find out yourself. Yeah, Intradel is why we are here doing this podcast. Otherwise, I would never have known George or you either. Yeah, and we can do a project together from halfway around the world. And that's fun. Uh, The blog that I write for, Noob Heavy, Melinda is from Australia. I live in the eastern U.S. Many of our writers write from the western U.S. We have people in England. We have friends in Europe, in Canada, and in South America, Asia. Like, Noob Heavy, just the blog, just the people we have a direct connection to, is literally international. So, we rely on this thing, and we are aware that it, like it's amazing that we can connect with all these people. Yeah, and it's rather empowering. Like the more diversity you have, like the more, uh, uh, like bigger the scope is, the range gets like bigger and everything. Like you get way more interesting content and interesting yeah. perspective. Hattie, talking to you, you're the first Bangladesh person I've met who is in the metal, and that's a really cool. And if it weren't for this, I would have never known you. And maybe. You don't know anyone locally. Maybe you live in a place like I do, where you do have a big metal scene, but the people around you are not necessarily the most social. So it's a lot easier to find friends uh, online. And that's very cool. Yeah, that is really cool. This thing called the Internet, it has brought a lot of us together. And even though it has been used in the past as a place for dickheads to sound off, a lot of us are actually out there using the internet to build these positive connections and gain more knowledge about the world and people that we're not exposed to in our community. And so it's also this force for good, like you mentioned. And our metal community is more online as well, and you can connect to like-minded people. And it's great. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and telling us a lot about yourself, Weston. What do you say we talk about some Judas Priest? Sounds good. Heck yeah. All right. And I know you've told me before, Painkiller is your favorite. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I think a lot of people would agree. I was saying earlier when we were chatting, I think Painkiller is my number one. Maybe, maybe. Because there's others that are in the running. But the more I think about it, maybe I'm leaning towards Painkiller. And just like you said, it's very consistent. There's not a song that I think is a lot less good than the others. Yeah, totally. Eddie, you've been listening to Painkiller recently too, am I right? Yeah, like in my work day, I listened it twice while I was working. And when I was like getting home, I listened it one more time. It was on last Thursday. So I have been listening to it quite frequently. Yeah, I listened to it twice through recently as well. You asked me to do this, and I was like, you know, Painkiller is the only one I know super well, so let's go see if that holds up after all these years. And I think it's even better than I did way back then, because my tastes have evolved, and my idea of what I like in music has evolved. And it's amazing how this album, 33 years later, is better than it probably was when it came out. I think it's held up amazingly. Yes, and I guess it is a, an introductory Judas Priest album to a lot of people of our generation. Yeah, like it's the, a big yeah. youth album in a way. Mm-hmm. For sure. 
because the song painkiller i mean what can you really say about it that hasn't been said it's a metal yeah. masterpiece and then you keep listening to the rest of the album and there's even more bangers on it so yeah it's it's a easy album to check out first and again it's really consistent i like every song on it including the one we're going to talk about today weather rebel oh boy light it in the dark so weston what made you suggest weather rebel for today so i was going through the track list and i was like any of these songs honestly you could talk about forever they have this history being on a super important album but also individually as songs they're all really good but leather rebel really spoke to me because it's kind of it's subtle in that it's not doing exactly what you would expect it to do it is a very straightforward fast sort of speed metal song that is very traditional for judith priest but it's got a lot more going on it's not very simple it's not like very cut and dry there's a lot more compositionally speaking than you'd expect and also i think looking at the broader context of the podcasts you guys are doing for this month it has this unintentional but very intentional theme from a gay man's perspective it's impossible to ignore the fact that leather rebel has very different connotations depending on how you look at it yes it's got the very obvious like i'm a metal god all this fighting monsters and like I'm wearing leather and it's very like metal hell yeah but it's also like BDSM it's leather biker stuff which is exactly the kind of gay world that Rob Halford was very intentionally putting into his music from the beginning that most people were not aware of when it came out so I think it's this really cool sort of time capsule of so many things Oh boy, we have emotional support Halford at the <laughs> right time today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have to remember to put a picture of this guy on Twitter. Thanks, Virgil. <laughs> but yes, yes, Leather Rebel, I think when we get in there and we try to break down the implications of those lyrics, we are going to find that it fits in really nicely with the theme we're running this month. So, yeah, I have to applaud you on that choice. I think that it's going to work well. I mean, I don't know if there's ever really a truly right or wrong meaning in a song, but I think that you're hitting on something that there's probably some truth in it in this song. Yeah. Ooh, and the album art, like Pinchiller's album art is really into intricate like i like these like, other um, album arts those are amazing like you know uh sad wings of destiny is possibly my most favorite album art and mm -hmm. my most favorite album even sorry y'all but you know the uh, painkiller has this very intricate and uh really nice color themed and everything like artistically it is very awesome album art. So there we have it. The red and the blue have a nice yes. stark contrast. And then in the middle, the gray and green Those. or the silver and green of the winged uh, painkiller savior riding the green metal monster dragon. It, the colors all really pop and stand out from each other. It, it's a great art. Yeah. And that wheel of the bike. That uh, really metal got razor wheel it, 
Yeah, everything about this art just screams heavy, sharp, dangerous metal. Boy, and it is. It, the album totally holds up to the art. Right. And then even in the bottom, you get the Judas Priest cross, which they brought back from the Sad Wings album cover. So that's a callback there from the Sad Wings cover where the angel had this cross symbol around its neck. And then it's also theorized that this winged metal savior riding the motorcycle is the same angel from Sad Wings, the cover, Reborn. I think that's very appropriate if it is. It fits what's happened to Judas Priest. They've evolved, but they're the same, but they're not. So it's like this mishmash of the ways that Judas Priest has existed, represented visually, which is really cool. Yes, like they are coming out of their own shells. Hey, it's Weather Rebel time. Okay, that is part one of Weather Rebel, and this song, I think, is very strongly driven by Scott Travis's double bass drumming. Like, There's a lot of good stuff instrumentally, but I think the drumming, to me, is what really stands out in the song. Yeah, like, you know, it kind of works as an activator, like the song starts with this guitar sound. And then, like, Scott kind of activates that, you know, heaviness and that, yes, this is the song you are getting, get in here, bitch. And, yeah, and it just starts. The song really starts from there. Yeah. Uh, you can tell the, the, the conversation around Painkiller has often been like, this is Judas Priest's thrash metal album. And even if you don't necessarily agree with that, it's really hard to ignore the fact that the band is very clearly feeling the pressure from bands like Metallica, like Megadeth, like Slayer, like Testament, who are absolutely exploding three or four years prior to this album coming out, because this is a Judas Priest album with really aggressive riffing. Like, they've always been fast, but Judas Priest hasn't always been aggressive. But this this song screams aggression. It is so pummeling. It's so in your face in a way that I don't think would have happened if it weren't for this thrash explosion. And like, the band is very clearly pushing in this direction, whether intentionally or sort of being subtly influenced. Yeah. Certainly, yeah. Because Judas Priest, at a time, they were the heaviest band out there. And they weren't anymore when they were doing the Turbo and the Ram It Down era. 
and they needed to keep up. And I think they did a pretty good job of it. I mean, sure, other bands at this point were still faster and heavier, especially as death metal was starting to emerge. But they also proved they didn't need to be the number one heaviest. They could keep up, but still strike a reasonable balance with the sound that they've had for so many years. And like, if you look at other similar bands like Iron Maiden, they were going in a more progressive route compared to Judas Priest. Uh, You look at a lot of other Nawabum bands, they're going maybe poppier. They're going maybe uh, away from metal entirely. But Priest is like breaking up. Yeah, or breaking up. Like so many bands just disappeared in that like 86 to 90 era because they could not make money anymore because the new extreme metal movement was taking shape. And all the bands that did survive, like Priest, like Maiden, were getting so big that like the only thing that could stop them was themselves, which is kind of fitting in a way. Becoming so powerful that only they can stop themselves. And in a way, they they later did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting point you brought up because exactly the only thing that could stop them was internally them tearing themselves apart. And that happened shortly after Painkiller at a time when they rightfully should have been at the top of their game releasing such a strong album. But we would learn many years in hindsight that things were not as okay as they seemed from the outside. Yeah, it's surprising to hear an album that's so consistent, that has such a singular vision, and learn that behind the scenes, it's they couldn't make it work. Because on, on in the artistic side, usually, if you have a band collapsing, the album sounds like super scattered. Nobody can agree on what to do with the album. Sounds like, oh, you got these songs that sound that were written by one person. You got these other songs that were written by another. They don't sound anything alike. They don't belong on the same album. But here, Priest managed to somehow make it work because they're so good at what they do. Yeah, and the songwriting is most of the time very consistent. It's uh, mostly Halford and Glenn and sometimes JK. And it is uh, possibly been the same like for most of their run, except the time when Halford wasn't there or when JK isn't here. You're right. It does generally rest upon three main songwriters, Halford and whichever are the two lead guitarists. And hey... Uh, this entire album was written by the same dream team of Rob, Gwen, and Ken as all the other classics, but they really benefited again from Scott Travis because they couldn't have done an album this fast without his incredible drumming skills. And this is a guy, Scott, who wanted to join Judas Priest. Like he was a fan and he used to hang out outside their shows and try to give them demo tapes and say, hey, I bet you could use a drummer like me to really take your band to the next level. And sure enough, that happened. I think that uh, this is the best fan addition to the lineup in Priestess. There's another fan lineup that's uh, not so good, but this one is amazing. You know, I kind of guess what you are going, where you are going to it. And I agree with it. Yes, I agree. And I don't think any of us are thinking Richie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's man. never Richie. Yeah. Yeah. No, we like him. But anyway, uh, okay. So let's get these lyrics from the first verse and see what we can pull from them. Hero of the Night. 
blood and thunder rushing through me till the dawn of light the sky is turning red like a renegade all alone i walk through fire till i crash and blaze i'm living on the edge okay a lot of stereotypical metal imagery going on in here hero blood red fire uh they're checking the boxes and when people talk about painkiller being one of the most metal albums ever it's fulfilling a lot of different metal stereotypes and it is an album that it sounds like metal someone who's Mm -hmm. never heard metal in their life and they want a good baseline description what the hell is metal like painkiller is an album that could really represent the genre by itself one of the things you'll see historically is that uh nawab priests are not a nawab band objectively but I lumped them in. So many people lumped them in because they didn't really take off until the Noabum albums like the 80 album, like the 82 album. So like that's when Noabum was big. So I consider them a Noab band. And this is like the pinnacle of Noabum. Noabum is the point where you start to see bands writing songs about being metal. Black Sabbath never wrote a song about being metal. Uh, If you count Deep Purple, Deep Purple never wrote a song about being metal. They sort of had Machine Head, but like so... But this, these kinds of lyrics are so stereotypical. They're all about being tough, about being a warrior, and about fighting off some sort of faceless horde of enemies that wants to destroy you. This is so cliche in a sense, if you only read it on the surface. But, like I interpret, if you look at the lyrics from the perspective of a gay man who knows the BDSM scene, who knows the biker leather scene, if you look at these lyrics this way, this sounds a lot like a guy out on the town right before sunrise looking to get laid. And it's really hard to ignore that context, knowing that Halford is gay, because even if he wasn't, it could be read that way. But the fact that he is makes it even more likely to fit that sort of narrative. And, yep. you know, I see it. along with that, it also kind of it depicts, it can, like the, the lyric can depict that struggle, not straight cis-head men are, like, you know, if you are not cis-head men, you would, like, you have to be the hero of the night. You'd have those, like, emotions running inside you to even leave as who you are not just you know have the last part or whatever just to be a human that with your own qualities with your in your own way just to leave your own reality yeah own i trip. think it's very telling that the song is not titled something like letter warrior but letter rebel this idea mm-hmm. that you by default even with just a title you're already there's already something out there trying to keep you from living the way you want and in Rob's case, you know, it's like he's grappling with the fact that the outside world would not accept his identity, would not accept that he's gay. And it's really telling that these lyrics don't just have a fighting angle. They have a very specific sort of subtle suppression angle that something out there is trying to keep you down. Yes. Good way and to you are fighting back. You are rebelling against it. You are not attacking. He's not like leather attacker, leather hero. It's the leather rebel. Yeah. There's already someone oppressing you. Yeah. Now, looking at this through the lens of 1990, it's also important to mention that being a gay man or being a gay person at all in this time 
it was something that a lot of people did so in a pretty secretive way because gay marriage was pretty far off from being legalized. There were a lot of hateful people, a lot more people back then than there are now who were homophobic. And so people were, of course, in the closet a lot more often. But when people were famous, it was especially so because Rob Halford was at the front of, at the time, a very popular rock or metal band. He had to be really especially careful about where he would go to party because he doesn't want someone to recognize him and tell the entire world. Also, very important timeline since you mentioned it. This came out in 1990. That's two years after uh, Ronald Reagan's gone. The AIDS crisis has just been acknowledged by the mainstream like in a positive way for one of the first times. You have Princess Diana talking to and touching people with AIDS, which was a huge deal. Nobody wanted to touch these people, let alone talk yes. to them, let alone acknowledge that they needed help. So for They were treated Rob, like lepers. Yes, absolutely. So for Rob to be a gay man in this time and write a song like this, it's very clear. Like it's not just the general sense of oppression. There's a re- there's like real historical events that are happening right before this that are majorly impacting people he would know. I can't imagine how many people he knows who were affected by AIDS. I've there's countless stories that everyone lost. Yes. So him to write a song like this it's not at one of defeat it's one of i'm going to fight this but it is acknowledgement of the fact that he does have to fight because it's not easy right and he has to start a chain reaction a chain reaction is if anyone hasn't heard that term it's when one action has a cause and effect on another action so a spark that leads to the lighting of more flames So starting that chain reaction is people who are oppressed coming together and speaking up as a group so that their voices can become louder. Totally. And, you know, it also, uh, chain reaction is how uh, the nuclear power works, like nuclear fission or nuclear fission. Both uh, actions are uh, mainly chain reactions. And, you know, when... it is like that, like it is a nuclear reaction of this rebellion that sears the neon light, stealing on the action, always takes the fight. I mean, this really huge explosive thing that's coming on to be a part of it, uh, like aid the reaction and all that. That's possibly another way of like looking at it. Who wants to hear more of Weather Rebel? Sure. Mm-hmm. Okay, so second verse, what do we got? Master of the streets, 
bulletproof and bound for glory. City's at my feet. I'm turning on the power. Running wild and free, no one dares to stand before me. That's my destiny to rule the darkest hours. Now, it certainly sounds like there's been somewhat of a jump in this person's standing because in the first verse, then it's sort of like they were hiding. Uh, you have lines like, like a renegade, all alone, I walk through fire. And now it sounds like there's a progression and a bigger sense of empowerment in the second part. Now they're the master of the streets and they're going to rule the darkest hours because no one dares to stand before them. Yeah, change. Like, you know, when the chorus was of Leather Rebel happened, I think it is the result of the rebellion. And now they are getting, like, they are empowered. They are ruling the dark times and all that, which possibly means they are giving their best shot, like claiming their place and all that. And it is also said, like, I can't see my future writings on the wall. Legend in my lifetime stories really call. I mean, he uh, achieved the goal for him and like the people of his kind. That and now he is, uh, she is considered as the uh, hero or the you know legend. I really like the writing on the wall stanza. I can see my future writings on the wall. Legend in my lifetime stories will recall. Like it's not just fitting for the themes of the song. I think it's also Rob pulling a uh, Babe Ruth. He's calling his shot. He's saying, I'm going to be one of the most important people in history. I can see this happening. And he's calling it and he's saying, I'm going to be that. And I think that's really cool because it's very easy to fall victim to the sort of rock star mentality of being more important than I am. But I think this is a cooler way of doing that because it's Rob saying, I have made a difference. I have lived my life as this person in the night, as this gay man hiding behind the leather, behind all these ideas. I'm going to be a legend in my lifetime. He's not going to die. He's not going to get forgotten. He's going to be important. He's calling a shot. And, you know, he was right. 30 years later, he is one of the most respected individuals in music history. Not just music, but not just metal, but music in general. Everyone knows Rob Halford. He's a legend. Yeah. Even if you don't know his name, you know that person in aviator sunglasses and like bald head and snake tattoos. Absolutely. He's iconic. He certainly is. He's iconic, not just for his role as a really amazing metal vocalist, or dare I even say just a really amazing vocalist, but to be able to do that while also being a huge representative for the broader queer community yes to to gain that level of fame and while he was in the closet for his first stint with judas priest once he reunited he's been completely out and open and honest about his sexuality and if anything they've only gotten more popular yeah yes i think writing on the wall is also very fitting it's like him saying i'm going to come out eventually because like Mm -hmm. If you know what to look for, it's so obvious he's gay from the beginning. It's impossible to ignore. So it's almost like him saying a sort of tongue-in-cheek acknowledgement of the fact that, like, if you know where to look, this should not surprise you when it happens, when it comes out. So it's very funny in that sense because it's like there's all these little subtle details that can easily be overlooked 
unless you know what to look for. Certainly. Yes. Yeah. As far back as the 70s era of Judas Priest, Rob is referencing Fire Island and other yeah. popular pieces of gay culture in the song Raw Deal. He said that only one person ever picked up on it at the time. Like one person at a record shop signing asked, Hey, is that song Raw Deal about gay guys? And he didn't even ask, he didn't even ask, Are you gay? He asked, Is the song about gay guys? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, I've never heard that story. The laws. <laughs> and like, uh, I, I think one of the funniest examples is the cover to Turbo. Like that cover art. At the time, very much comes across like this sort of generic cock rock. Oh, I'm going to get laid with all these hot women sort of thing. But if you know, it's like, oh, I see what you're doing there. It's very obvious. It was a fun conversation in the Turbo episode. So, yes, I totally get where you're going, like where you're going. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Turbo is an album that's a lot more explicit talk about sex. And Mm -hmm. I think here... You're getting a read into gay culture, but this song and really not much on Painkiller seems to be that much about sex, more so just about a whole lifestyle. Taking over. And once you get past the lyrics, too, I think we're because we're about to get to the solo and it's kind of just started like this song is super aggressive. It's super fast. But the leads, they're subtle. They're melodic. They're kind of slow. They're pretty. They're not what you would expect a song like this to lead into for the guitar solo. But this is what I mean when I said earlier that like the song is a very classic Judas Priest, like straight ahead speed metal song, but it's not simple. It's deceptive. It's doing things differently than you'd expect, which fits Mm -hmm. the theme of this song because the whole everything going on is things are not what they seem. Expect the unexpected but in a very personal way. I guess those twists were mostly Glenn's contribution, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I'd be really help, uh, like glad if someone just corrected me. But you know how like this very speedy, high voltage start and then t- turns into something melodic and it always gets you. Like even I remember very vividly that last time I was uh, listening to like when I was uh, getting back home, like since I listened to it so many times, my nerves were expecting when that part will come and it will finally be at ease. Like I was really stiff around, like I was like uh, like having my hands like into twisted balls and all that just to get to that part. Like it is... It it has effect effects yeah. on you. Yeah, I feel that. Like especially if you're at a Judas Priest concert and you're standing there and you know when the solo is coming up and you're just waiting mm. for it, and then when the solo finally hits, it's like a lightning bolt through the body. Yeah, yeah. Because like it, you could easily you could easily just write a, a pretty fast kind of arpeggiated solo and it would be fine. It would work because they're good enough guitarists, but they, the choice to do that hits emotionally a lot harder. It's a really shows that there's depth here. Yes. And I don't know, maybe I am always very super Glenn fan, but most of the times those are indeed Glenn parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think both are playing parts of the solo in this song, but Hey, let's check it out. 
Yeah, I see what you mean there, Weston. So that is definitely more of a melodic passage. The kind of guitar part that if you're a guitarist might not be super hard to learn. But then at the tail end of that, they do throw in some shredding, which is nice. Just to, yeah. so oh, just a little something where they can say, oh, yeah, actually, we do have these skills and we are a metal band. So here's a little doodly doodly doo. Yes. And you know how this infinite first actually like hits you as a human who is listening to something like it gets emotions out of you. Like, you know, they're just getting inside your head or, you know, wherever your uh, emotions are. And like a very good colonoscopy doctor getting things out of you. Oh, my God. (laughs) What an analogy, right? That was an analogy. Hattie does those. I think that as far as those leads at the end when they were shredding, I think that was Gwen and KK trading off. Hopefully I'm right about that. It sounds like it. It sounds like there's this audio cue that like someone else is coming in. I don't know how to explain it, but yeah, it definitely sounds like they're trading off. Yeah, there's a stop and a start in between a couple of the leads. Definitely are. Overall, yeah, it's good. And you can tell that the melodic part before they did the shredding, it had a triumphant tone to it. And I think that's something that you get a decent chunk of in Painkiller, where I wouldn't say it's happy, but there's something about it that feels positive. Like if this is a song about battle or war, then you're going to win the fight. Basically. Yeah, it's brighter toned. It's more yes. open ended. It feels triumphant. And Halfo later said that he is always an optimistic person. He really doesn't dwell on you know negative experiences and all, and actually want to include everyone into greater positivity and optimism, uh, as opposed to a negative uh, prerogatives and all that. And that fits in so well with Weston's interpretation of the pre-chorus. I can see my future writings on the wall, legend in my lifetime, stories will recall. It's exactly like Rob's positive and optimistic tone on life was coming out in these lyrics, like saying, one day we will have a better society where people understand there's no difference between gay people and people of other sexualities. I think he inserted a little bit of that attitude into here, and I think it works. Yeah, the, the whole song feels optimistic. It do, it never feels like defeat is imminent for this character in the song, even though it's hard and it is a fight. It never feels like, oh, I might lose. You're going to win. That's what the song's about. It might take a while, but it, it's happening. Totally agreed. And to that end, I'm going to say, let's finish up this song. Yes.
there we go leather rebel a song that like weston said before there are a lot of subtleties in there not just in the lyrics but somewhat musically as well like in the end when they were in the last 15 seconds of the song and going out they would throw in these little blink and you miss it guitar licks that just they give a little something extra as the song is riding out like okay the song's almost done but here's one more cool solo for you yeah and i like how rob decides to accentuate the the chorus because like like he's saying leather rebel repeatedly all this stuff he's saying everything again and again so him adding these repeat choruses where he repeats a burning heart but in his falsetto as a sort of call and response and then he repeats leather rebel again as like a call and response it accentuates the lyrics that we already are familiar with it escalates them to another level like i love that falsetto delivery of a burning heart you can feel the passion burning in that delivery from rob really digging deep and letting it rip and it sounds incredible he is so into it and i think that's what helps this whole song his delivery is 100 percent authentic he's not just phoning it in on this song that the band is collapsing in on itself while making like he's giving it 100 percent for the entire album this whole song is a perfect encapsulation of that energy that he has absolutely yeah it sure is we talk a lot about Rob Halford's delivery because it's unique. And not only does it give extra energy to the song, it prevents what might become a repetitive chorus from getting there because if he's singing it a little bit differently each time, then it's really not so repetitive anymore. Yes. And he's a champion of that. Like he can always take a same a sentence or a verse and make something else out of it every single time he's delivering. Yeah, because like it's so easy for choruses in particular to really wear out their welcome by the end of a song. Sometimes choruses are written in such a way that they just grate on your nerves by the end of the track. But this, there's variety, there's change up, there's levels up and down. Yeah, a good example of a way to flesh out a chorus. I would say... That's a great capstone. Like this song has a lot of pieces that make it just a little more well-written than your average garden variety metal song. And someone on the outside at first, they might see this as just an average, nothing special metal song. But I think the deeper you dig in and you listen to Judas Priest and other bands who play a similar style of music, you realize the priest goes the extra mile and they do those little things that make the difference that just make the songs better and put them over the edge and over the competition. Yeah. You can tell that their decade of extra experience in the seventies paid off in the nineties. All the other bands from the same era yes. as the Nawabam era didn't have that seventies experience. So they're floundering, making them some of the mistakes that priest made in the mid eighties, but they, you know, they have all this extra experience to, to work on. And in a way, they actually defined heavy metal for others to, like, you know, tweak on the definition. Like, Absolutely. So, yeah, so that also, they also have that. So, and they never 
say that they are anything else but heavy metal, even though they were, they have been like they have yeah. experimented it with sounds and themes and everything else. But their intention was always to be heavy metal, not to like you know, as other bands and the contemporary bands were going. And we say that over and over again, like into progressive things, they didn't want to label themselves mm-hmm. as metal and like be more like you know, syllable uh, brand. Priest always wanted to remain heavy metal, even though they were, yeah. or even when they were not. Right. Yeah, because yeah. like I think people rightly identify that Black Sabbath invents heavy metal, but I think Judas Priest makes heavy metal a thing. They are the definition of metal. It's not a thing until Judas Priest arrives and says, "Here's what this should be." Because before it's just a thing that accidentally happens, but Priest are the first band to intentionally be a metal band. It's yes. like Sabbath dug up the metal out of the ground and then Judas Priest molded that slab of metal into shape and churned it out as, well, let's say British Steel, a product that could be marketed out to people. Yeah, totally. Way. Like I hate I hate that album, but it's it is a metal album. It's the perfect encapsulation of this. For sure. But hey, mm-hmm. we're not even gonna touch on the hating of yep. British Steel because <laughs> no, hey, we're that. moving on to give our wrap-up thoughts on Weather Rebel. Uh, yeah, Hattie, give me your overall feelings on this song. Well, overall feeling is I, no matter how many times I hear this song, I I want to hear it more. You know, like right now, I'll be listening to it after I'm done wrapping up this podcast and start working. <laughs> Other than that, this song is like the rest of the songs in this album. Also about this painkiller or this person is taking over. They are not here to like be told to do th- things and go with the flow, but to change things and get things in their own way. And this song, it is like possibly in the bottom side of the album, right? I don't remember uh, the... Uh, I think it's in the back half, yeah. Yes. So, you know, there are already other depictions of how this painkiller or this health patrol is going to like change the reality. And at this point, they are talking about rebellion and, you know, getting back what belonged to them and becoming a legend for the others to follow. So, yes, um, I think uh, that's the uh, on-surface meaning, that this is about the rebellion that was hinted by the earlier tracks. And But in the deep meanings, as we have depicted, so we can correlate it to BDSM movement and all that, like leathers and studs, and which is like basic male stripper BDSM thingy from even way like 70s, I guess, or even like late 60s. I'm not sure anymore, but that's the thing. And then there is this other thing that not just the LGBTQ community, but also around 90s, uh, it is like early 90s album. So already the Thatcher bullshit has taken over. Like people in UK were economically not at their best place. Like in US have white trash. So there are British white trash people 
I mean, sorry for being like this, but yet that that it was a thing, and these people were not at their best place. And you know, at nights, at odd hours, they had their time to shine, and those are possibly also hinted in this song and the theme of the album, as well as the inclusive AVD of people who are not necessarily cishet rich people. So there you have it from me. It's a rebellion of the odd man or odd women out. There you have it. That's really, that's really good. That's hard to follow. <laughs> well, Weston, what else do you want to get in on this song that you haven't already mentioned? A little history. So uh, the biker, the leather biker culture evolved from World War II because you have all these really? pilots who were, who were, who love being in the air and they come home. And they can't mm-hmm. fly planes anymore because, you know, they don't have access. They're not in the military. So what do they do? They get really into motorcycles because it's got this. It, it's like a plane. It's got this personal freedom. It's got this sort of like riskiness to it. You know, planes are not very stable in World War II. Motorcycles are not very safe right after World War II. So it's and that they're wearing these bomber jackets that they still have from when they're pilots. So you get this evolution of this entirely separate culture out of World War II. And I think that mm-hmm. that's a perfect real life example of the kind of metaphor that's being grabbed here, that this fight that has caused this character that has caused Rob Halford to live the life that he does is born from a certain thing, but it's evolving. It's transitioning into something better. It is becoming something else. And it's it's not the way you'd expect it to be born. And I think this is a great example of how for decades, for centuries, queer people and black people and sex workers and all of these people on the outskirts have been taking things that already exist. Because of them, we have these amazing parts of culture. We have rock and roll literally born from a history of slavery. And now we have stuff like Judas Priest. Now we have all these other amazing ways of existing. And I think this song perfectly encapsulates that mentality even if it's not specific to any one era of music it's this idea that rebelling against oppressive forces simply by existing is a powerful statement wow that's amazing too now how am i gonna follow that one (laughs) sorry george hey it's all good i want to keep it short and sweet because you both did such a great job of summing things up. Leather Rebels, another awesome track from an album where basically that's all you get. They're all awesome. And we already said so much about it. I'll give you a little history lesson of my own, maybe. And here is the story about how many times this song was played live. Only twice. And these were at the two rehearsal slash warm-up gigs that Judas Priest played to introduce Scott Travis as a member of the band. This was at the Forum in Los Angeles, September 1990, and these shows were recorded, and the live version of Weather Rebel is included in the O2 remaster of Painkiller. That's the version of the album that's on most streaming services. And so it's pretty easy to find. This is the story of the leather rebel. (laughs) 
Yeah, so 1990, that series of two concerts, that's the only time Priest ever played Leather Rebel, and yet a lot of people have heard it because this live version is so readily available. So, you know, I wonder why the band never, ever gave it another chance in the set list, because they've played every other song on Painkiller since. I, I own the uh, remastered version, so I have always had access to the live so I was never aware that they basically never played this live but aren't there like one or two other songs from this album that they for a long time did not play live yeah you're right about that much one shot at glory wasn't played until they did the 50th anniversary tour a couple years ago but yeah they've played pretty much all of them you're right i don't know why they wouldn't yeah i don't know why they wouldn't play these songs but especially like rebel because it's a great song i'm sure it would be a fan favorite if they played it live and it doesn't seem like it's particularly difficult for them to perform like some of the older songs ha- have been so i'm i'm not sure i would love to hear it live me too yeah maybe with the 30th anniversary of painkiller having come and gone it's a possibility mm-hmm. i mean they've been showing us in recent years that they're more than willing to dig up gems and put them in the set list so i say never say never with any song coming back unless it's from an album that robbed wasn't singing then you're out of luck. Uh, mm-hmm. but, and circuit breakers. And, yeah, and you're out of circuit breakers. But anything on Painkiller is fair game. Oh, uh, shit. Well, I like this song, and I think that about covers it. Weston, I want to thank you very much for coming on and being part of our series to spotlight more queer people in the metal community because, like we've talked about so many times, Rob Halford is amazing, and he's an icon, and... I think that there needs to be more than just him for queer people in the metal fan base to look up to. We've talked about that so many times, and there are great people like you in our community who write for Noob Heavy and other great sites where you're giving that queer community a little bit of a boost and a louder voice, and that's an excellent thing that you do for us. So thank you, Weston. Thank you very much for having me. It was a great conversation, and I love to talk about this stuff. I love talking about the things that I'm passionate about and glad that I get to help uplift voices that would be unheard otherwise. I am really grateful that you were with us together. And I guess from the Twitter messages, I heard that this is possibly one of your first you know, podcast appearances, and it makes me, if not George, you as well, like very grateful that you chose us to like do your first podcast with or one of the first few podcasts with. And um, what else can I say? What the thing you are doing with New Pavy is possibly going to help more of us to understanding to feel like uh, a sense of community so with all that i am really grateful that you are here we're doing what you do and also for this amazing commentary on this song and that also reminds me of that gatha christie novel the moving finger 
where in the beginning the uh one of the main characters the brother who was an air force pilot for RAF he went really reckless with the, his motorbike and like almost was in a fatal accident and was recovering that just came to that town where things happen for recovery so yes now that you say i will be thinking of leather rebel in even more dif- uh, different ways if not the other bike related or biker related albums from other uh, bands along with you thank you hattie i really appreciate everything you said all right everyone <laughs> okay. next time you think leather rebel think world war ii pilots driving their motorcycles really fast uh yes all right that's all the heavy metal chatter we've got for this episode of judas christ cast so until next time keep defending the faith <laughs>